morning, Gloria America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Greetings to the rest of the globe from the ReliefFactor.com studio. I am Hugh Hewitt on the West Coast, headed to Ohio later in the day. Blessedly, we'll not have to stop in Michigan today, where we find our morning guest, Professor Adam Carrington of Hillsdale College. He is uh, the Hillsdale Dialogue participant today, and he's up in Hillsdale. He teaches so much, it makes me tired looking at this. He teaches Politics 101, the U.S. Constitution, Politics 301, American Government, Politics 303, the American Presidency, Politics 305, Civil Rights, Politics 306, Political Parties and Elections, Politics 412 and 504, Politics and Literature, Politics 416, Montesquieu, Politics 742, the American Presidency, Con Law and Con Law 2, Hamilton, the Man in the Musical, Politics and the Bible. Honestly, Adam Carrington, you're giving me a bad name. I teach two classes a year. Well, I would say that uh, President Arnn would still say he doesn't get his money's worth out of me. Well, of course he would. That's a given. Uh, But we know that he does. I'm just curious as to how you do that many course preps. We're going to dive into the subject matter of many of them today. But is it like a manic thing with you? Um, well, I, I mentioned that I do the uh, the uh, uh, the Hamilton, the Man, the Musical as a one credit hour course here. I guess I write like I'm running out of time. There, oh, uh, we use that song. That's yeah. that's a bump song for us. Yeah. So well, that's it. You write like you're running out of time. How long have you been at Hillsdale? Uh, this is my fifth year. I'm about to complete my fifth year. And you went there right out of Baylor, at where your PhD is from. I did. All I right. Did. So it, it's great to have you on. I appreciate you joining me again. Everything Hillsdale is collected at hillsdale.edu. Everything, including great courses on the Constitution. All of the Hillsdale dialogues uh, going back to 2013 are collected at Hugh for Hillsdale. Go there, get smart. But we're going to talk about this. Two articles, Professor Carrington. Kevin Williamson has an article at National Review today that uh, is called The Burn It Down Democrats and begins the Senate, the Electoral College, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Supreme Court. Is there a part of our constitutional order that the Democrats have not pledged to destroy at the same time? Over at the New York Times, there is a column by Jamal Bowie. Getting rid of the Electoral College isn't just about Trump, but does anyone really think popular vote losers make better presidents? Are you astonished as I am that this has become the central debate in the Democratic primary? I am surprised that they would make this the focus, given that there are other things that I think could be much more effective for them. I mean, no one, they're not asking my advice. But to go after the constitutional mechanism of selecting the president, especially right after it's the reason they lost, it looks you know like sore loserism. Uh, I respect it a lot more. There's an article I sometimes give my students from the New York Times in uh, uh, in in late 2008, saying, "Okay, President Obama won, and we're still opposed to the popu- to the Electoral College." But right now, I think it just shows. Uh, a bit of out-of-touchness, and a bit of lack of self-awareness. Now, one of the arguments Kevin makes is not out-of-touchness and out-of-awareness, but stupidity, meaning they have been taught that anything democratic is good and anything non-democratic is bad, and that civics and maybe history and maybe some idea of what happens with pure democracy has vanished from our curriculum. What do you think? Absolutely. I'm teaching the Federalist Papers for the first time right now, uh, to add to the whole list of courses, by the way. And, and a thing that they over and over say is the, the, uh, the history of republics, the history of popular governments up to that point is actually really bad. In other words, republics that have not been aware of their own weaknesses have collapsed. 
and collapsed so often, so violently, so horrifically that it, we've gotten to the point where some people are saying people can't have free government. And what they say is what you can't do is assume that republics are – that by making people uh, a republic, you cure them of their bad human nature or their bad tendencies. And I think the brilliance of the constitutional system and, and the Electoral College included is it is a republic that is aware of its own weaknesses and therefore doesn't look to purely be a republic, but looks to channel and, and, and move and, and make uh, the way that it makes its decisions still republican, but a way that fights off the problems of pure democracy. And I think that is something that we're, we're not paying attention to. Uh, 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 you know, I heard someone once say, man learns from history that man doesn't learn from, from history. history. Yeah. And this is, uh, I think, a good example of that. My short-form argument is that the Constitution preserves freedom and that this country is built with the idea of maximizing individual liberty. Uh, it can't be complete, but it needs to be maximized. Generalissimo, who is our producer, uh, Dr. Carrington, had a uh, conversation with a young friend last night about this very subject. Uh, Generalissimo, tell uh, Professor Carrington what that was. So this is a 15-year-old who is trying to do an English project. He's got to come up with a subject that is a current event, political and controversial and he just needed some ideas. And I said, so what about the the question of whether the popular vote is how we should select a president? He goes, oh, that's a really good one. So he starts thinking about it. And he says, I think we should because the Electoral College was designed by the founders to prevent a civil war. And it failed to do that. And it's clearly failing now. So what's an answer that I can give a 15-year-old that he'll understand? I think a good answer would be that uh, why, um, maybe a good way to put this would be, why sometimes does, do you and your parents say to not even go down the, uh, the candy aisle in the grocery store? Why do you sometimes just avoid that altogether? It's because you might put yourself in a place to make a bad choice, you know, if you're on a diet or if you're doing something else. And that the way the Electoral College sets things up is it, it channels how we make choices so that we put ourselves in a position to make better ones. And just like people on a diet or people in the grocery store avoid certain aisles, that's what I think the Constitution tries to do and how we set up our, uh, our, our way of doing so. To his so. specific argument, though, that the yeah. Electoral College was supposed to prevent the Civil War, my response is, no, it didn't. No, it wasn't. It was designed to represent small states against large states and to keep factions in check and to make sure that people, if men were angels, no government would be necessary, but we are not. So I, I think his premise is wrong. No, that may, I think that's a good way to put it as well. That um, our, And I think what you said earlier is a good point to, to say that if you look at the Declaration of Independence, the first thing it says that government's job is, is actually not even to represent the will of the people. It's to protect and secure inalienable rights. But part of that is recognizing the consent of the governed. But that means the consent of the governed must be channeled in such a way that it furthers liberty, that it furthers individual rights. So we, we, what a lot of people say is they, they make democracy too simplistic. They say as long as the inputs, the process of going in, seems in some abstract way fair, you know, one person, one vote, that it's, it's good, it's fine. 
whereas the founders wisely were saying, no, 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 we want to know what the output is going to be. What kind of majority is going to be created? What kind of person is going to get elected normally? And unless you ask that question, you're not asking the right questions as far as what kind of process is going to be most fair, just, and good for the American people. Now, at Hillsdale, you self-select for smart kids who are interested in the constitutional order. Do they get the Electoral College, Professor Carrington? They do. Uh, and, and there are going to be, there are always some who, who want uh, the popular vote. And to be honest, if you look at the convention notes, there were very prominent founders that were in favor of a, of a popular vote, but they decided in the long run that, that the Electoral College was satisfactory. And even I think some of them came to believe better. But uh, generally, I, I try to lay out a good argument for both sides. But uh, in the, for the most part, I think they really do see that issue that the uh, Electoral College shows not just democracy, but thoughtful and intelligent democracy, uh, aware of what it needs to do to have a good outcome. And I think that happens here. Yeah. And the framers were very aware. I mean, they, they knew their Plutarch Hamilton studied it by candlelight at Valley Forge. General McChrystal made a big point of telling me that when he was a guest on my program. They knew their history of what happens when you have direct democracy. Absolutely. Uh, read the beginning of Federalist 9 written by Hamilton, where or, or read uh, Federalist 10 with Madison, where he says the history of democracies has been, they have been as short in their lives as, as they have been violent in their deaths. And what that means is that um, you can have a tyrant of one and you can have a tyrant of 51%. Uh, because human beings, as, as much as there is good in them, there's also the, the will to be tyrannical over others, the, the will to want to violate the rights of others. And what we need is a government system that pushes against that while still recognizing the consent of the governed. And that's what I think, the, again, the genius of the system is. I'm coming right back with Professor Adam Carrington of Hillsdale College. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue, our weekly march down a big issue, a big piece of, of, of history and a big piece of constitutional law. The Electoral College is on the table since the Democrats have put it there. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Alexander joins forces with James Madison and John Jay to write a series of essays defending the new United States Constitution entitled The Federalist Papers. The plan was to write a total of 25 essays, the work divided evenly among the three men. In the end, they wrote 85 essays in the span of six months. John Jay got sick after writing five. James Madison wrote 29. Hamilton wrote the other 51. Right, like you're running out of time. Right day and night, like you're running out of time. Every day you fight, like you're running out of time. Like you're running out of time. Are you running out of time? Welcome back, America. To Hewitt. That is from Hamilton. My guest, Professor Adam Carrington, in fact, teaches a course on Hamilton, the man, and the musical. I do love that song, don't you, uh, Professor? I do. I was very happy. Before the musical came out, I actually knew it was coming, and I, I, I played for my students for before a class the uh, the performance Miranda gave at uh, the White House, and I said, I really hope this is this is good. And I, I do think, you know, as a as as a political scientist, I can always quibble, but uh, I think it's a great introduction to many Americans that might not otherwise be interested in the founding to get them started into it. I, I saw it again this weekend, this past weekend. I saw it in San Francisco. Burr stole the show. We had an understudy for Hamilton, but Burr's role is very, very good as sort of the 
the nemesis of everything that is American. Now, I want to go, though, to the strongest arguments. You made, you made this point. If you're going to defeat arguments against the Electoral College, you need to defeat the best ones against the Electoral College, correct? Right. And James Buell in the uh, Jamel Bowie, I want to make sure I get his name correct because I don't want it to be uh, uh, Jamel Bowie, writes in the New York Times today that Madison himself uh, was not worried about a president being directly elected. He was worried about states being underrepresented. He was worried about conflict. But Madison referred to pure democracy, meant direct governance by the people, a society consisting of a small numbers of person. He contrasted that with the representative democracy or Republican government. And while Madison agreed to an electoral college, he also saw the merit of choosing a chief executive by popular election. The people at large, he argued during the Constitutional Convention, would be as likely as any that could be devised to produce an executive magistrate of the distinguished character. The people of generally could only know and vote for some citizen whose merits had been rendered him an object of general attention and esteem. Was he wrong? Was Madison wrong? Yep. I, I think I think that this is an instance where, in some ways, you see the benefits of uh, deliberating together and compromising. Because Madison, uh, uh, Hamilton to a certain degree, James Wilson, actually all of them did originally support a national popular vote. So I don't want to immediately just throw that idea out the window as wild and, and, and silly. But I think if you look at how Federalist 68 then defends the Electoral College, it shows that um, the system they came up with took the benefits of a national popular vote and then mixed it with a system that fights off some of the worries of it that come from the kind of direct democracy questions that even Madison himself had. So I think that uh, uh, you know, the national popular vote recognizes that we need consent of the governed, but I think it what the, the Electoral College system itself does is channels that will in a way, makes candidates run in a certain way that I think uh, is, is actually even better than what maybe some particular founders originally uh, uh, preferred. Now, I also want to raise with you a question. We only have a minute to the break. We'll come back to it the longer segment, uh, which is by bringing up the Electoral College, Democrats are irresponsibly raising an expectation that it might actually go away. It will never go away. Because the Constitution has to be amended by two-thirds of both houses or by uh, a convention of the states. And if two-thirds of the houses send an amendment, it requires three-quarters of the states. And there are not three-quarters of the states to abolish the Electoral College. Am I correct? Yes. I think this is another classic case of over-promising that will result in under-delivering. And is that bad for, for our republic? Absolutely. If, if you start getting elected on what seem to be manifestly false pretenses... You're going to disappoint the people. That's going to undermine the relationship between uh, office holders and those that elect them. And that undermines the fundamental idea that uh, republics are based ultimately on the consent of the governed. We'll be right back. Going to continue our conversation with Professor Adam Carrington of Hillsdale College. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue, all things Hillsdale. Collected at hillsdale.edu. You can sign up for the free Imprimus Speech Digest, absolutely free, just by going to hillsdale.edu. Go nowhere, America. No one else was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened. The room where it happened. No one else was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened. The room where it happened. No one really knows how the game is played. The art of the trade, how the sausage is made. We just assume that it happens. 
everyone else is in the room where it Welcome happens. back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. This is the room where the Hillsdale Dialogue happens. The studio, joined now by Adam Carrington, a professor at Hillsdale College, Adam M. Carrington. You can follow him on Twitter, Carrington A, I believe is his Twitter handle. My, A.M., Carrington A.M. is his Twitter handle. And, uh, Adam, I, I, I want to go back to um, an article that came out this morning by our friend David M. Drucker at the Washington Examiner. Republicans resigned to Trump losing 2020 popular vote, but confident about the Electoral College. It begins senior Republicans have resigned to President Trump losing the popular vote in 2020, conceding that the limits of the flamboyant incumbent's political appeal and revealing just how central the Electoral College has become to the party's White House prospects. Is that good for the system? I think in the end, it's not good for that to be the norm. I think it is much better, as most of American history has been, for the popular vote winner to also be the Electoral College winner, because I think one thing the Electoral College does is it it clarifies the majority, that winning the popular vote can sometimes seem closer than it appears, whereas an electoral vote majority can often be much more pronounced and therefore give a president a much more sense of legitimacy. But I think given that ultimately we are committed to um, consent of the governed, I, I don't think it's it's healthy for this to be the thing that always happens. I think the Electoral College has advantages that, that I'm absolutely in support of keeping it, but I think it's better if, if, if they align with the popular vote most of the time. Now, here is an, another uh, paragraph from the Buell piece in the New York Times. Beyond issues of representation, there are other practical problems with the status quo. When margins between candidates are large, the Electoral College aligns with the national popular vote. But narrow margins throw it into chaos. The 1968 presidential election nearly went to the House of Representatives. In 1976, if you move roughly 6,000 ballots from Jimmy Carter in Ohio and 18,000 in Wisconsin, Gerald Ford becomes president despite losing by nearly 1.7 million. Indeed, the recurring prospect of a president elected with a minority of the vote inspired a major push to end the Electoral College in the 60s with an amendment introduced by Birch Bayh, who recently passed away, in fact, this week at the uh, age of 91. In 1968, he spoke before the Committee of Congress. It never got to the states, though. So something, the inevitability of defeat, I think, is what, what stops us or ought to stop us from having this conversation. I, absolutely. And I, I think something that I, I should probably say just a little more about is what are these advantages that make our majorities more moderate with the Electoral College? And I think in some ways, I, I think we're talking about the destabilizing effect. I think we need to talk about how the Electoral College stabilizes the uh, electorate in a way that if we were only doing the popular vote, it wouldn't. We'd always be talking about a couple thousand votes here, a couple thousand votes there, in a way that I don't think we do at the Electoral College. Uh, What the Electoral College does is it forces candidates to create a national majority that uh, you can't just run up the vote totals in urban areas or suburban areas or rural areas. You can't just run up votes in the coast or the heartland. You've got to actually run across the country and across sections of the country. And I think that uh, while we do want it to align with the popular vote, that creates a more moderate majority. It forces candidates and parties to take into account more of the country than they might otherwise, more than just their base. And I think that makes it so that more interest and more of the common good is, 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 is realized in that kind of election that I don't think happens with a popular vote. 
Now, uh, Jamel responds to that by saying, take rural representation. If you conceive of rural America as a set of states, the Electoral College does give voters in Iowa and Montana and Wyoming a sizable say in the selection of the president. If you conceive it as a population of voters, on the other hand, the picture is different. Roughly 60 million Americans live in rural counties, and they aren't concentrated in rural states. Millions live in mid-sized states like California, uh, New York, Illinois, Alabama, and South Carolina. I pause there because I, I missed the word large, and you know that's obviously a large state. With a national popular vote for president, you could imagine a Republican campaign that links rural voters in California, where 5 million people live in rural counties, to those in New York with roughly 1.4 million people. In other words, rural interests would be represented from coast to coast as opposed to a system that only weights those who live in swing states. I think that what you have to understand, too, is that rural voters in different states often can have a similar interest, and that even when you're, and that by being forced to run in moderate states, swing states that have sizable rural populations, you actually are forced to cater to the, the, the needs of rural voters in that way that I, I, I'm not completely convinced that you would have if you had that national system. And, I, and my other response is that uh, you mentioned that this, Hugh, that we, we're not just looking for that. We're also looking for representing the states. We are a federalist system. We believe that the states have a real say and a real place. And so we want to keep the integrity of states as states as part of this conversation as well. That, that it, Isn't that, the response that, though, Professor, that the one part of the Constitution that cannot be amended by the explicit terms of the Constitution is equal representation of the states in the Senate? So we always have um, a backstop there. We do. We do in the Senate, but we also, uh, one thing to keep in mind is the president is the one officer that the entire country chooses. No, the entire country doesn't choose Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell, even if they're the leaders of of their particular legislative body. Um, The president is the one officer that everyone chooses. I think it makes sense that we would bring every subset of the system to bear in making that choice, that we would not only bring the national will, but we would also bring in what the states think, because this is the one representative of the entire country as a whole in and of him or herself. Now, uh, last quote from Buell. Um, In 2016, Sam Wang, a molecular biologist at Princeton, uh, found out that of almost 400 campaign stops made after the conventions, neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump made appearances in Arkansas, Oregon, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, the Dakotas, Kansas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Mississippi, New York, South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, or Vermont. It doesn't matter that Trump won millions of votes in New Jersey or Hillary Clinton won millions of votes in Texas. If your state is reliably red or blue, you are ignored. Now, I argue that's not true because we have a national news media and we live in an age of technology and and Internet availability of of information. But it does take the president. He he can't gin up. There's no point for him to go campaign in, um, in West Virginia. There is no point for Hillary Clinton to go campaign in West Virginia. We have a three state election, in essence, Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. Adam, is that bad? I don't think that it's bad in the sense of why are those states the focus? Uh, They become the focus because in many ways they are a microcosm of the country. And therefore, to win those states is to craft a nationally palatable uh, platform. 
And I think another thing you said about the media, I, I worked on a presidential campaign uh, back in the day, and the big thing that a lot of the campaigns were pushing for rallies and visits was news media coverage. And that news media coverage, of course, was partly local, but the idea was that this was a way to reach the national audience and to do so in a way that since you were running in a swing state, you're placating or, 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 or pitching to the average American voter. And I think that that is something that, sure, that means the president doesn't personally visit every, every particular state on the campaign trail, but the swing states are a swing state for a reason that shows a national vision of his messaging, a national vision of, his, um, of what he thinks is the common good for the country. Otherwise, these other states would become swing states because the people would say, your message is out of touch with our interests and our values. I'm also deeply skeptical of the... Uh abolishment of the Electoral College because of its uh, secondary impact on polling. It would increase dramatically the um, uh, impact of polling on the race in that people want to go with the winner. And if there isn't a path for someone, they go with the winner. I think it, it's, it's got to be on some people's minds. This will uh, end up being conclusively decided long before the election is is balloting is done well and that's also why i'm against early voting of any kind i think uh that 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 campaign can change in the last couple of weeks and i think that also the problem too is um one of the one of the difficulties with the national popular vote is getting a, a clear majority that uh, the Electoral College demands that you win not just a plurality of electoral votes, but a majority. And I think that that's not only good for legitimacy, I think it's also good for the moderation of the kind of coalition you try to build that I talked about before. And I think with the national popular vote, you have a lot better chance of five or six people jumping into the race and the, po- and the winner if it's a plurality, being, you know, 35% of the vote. And imagine the legitimacy problems if that was all you had to hang your hat on, 35% of the American people. I think that's a much bigger problem with the popular vote and much like or more likely constitutional crisis if it happened. Now, it's not a constitutional crisis if if a uh, uh, election goes to the House because it's provided for in the Constitution, but it would certainly be controversial. I've written a column, Howard Schultz's Path to the White House, is by winning one state of sufficient electoral size that it throws it to the House, and then he basically blackmails the Democrats to to elect him president. Do you fear that? Do you fear an election in the House? I don't fear an election in the House happening. I do fear an election in the House being the norm, for uh, because I think it's the problem with the diversions between the popular vote and the electoral vote on steroids, to be honest. Because one reason they didn't want the House selecting the president normally in the Constitutional Convention is twofold. One, worries about the independence of the executive. Governor Morris, one of the founders, says this, the president will become the creature of the legislature, which, via, which will undermine separation of powers. The second is there's a lot more problem of intrigue, log rolling, and buying off Amen. In, a set, in a set system like the House, and especially the House and Senate the way they are now. So I think that's another problem where the House should be only extreme breakdowns of the system. Otherwise, and I think also just the We've never had one. Would, well, we had one. We had one. We'll come back from break and talk about that one instance and what we might expect in 20, uh, 2020. Don't go anywhere, America. And when push 
comes to shove I will send a fully armed battalion To remind you of my love Welcome back, America. That's Hamilton, my guest. Adam Carrington teaches a bunch of courses at Hillsdale College. One of them is Hamilton, the man in the musical, and that's King George singing in Hamilton. You know, we have direct democracy in Great Britain with a parliamentary system, and it's totally broken down, Adam Carrington. Uh, Do people not connect those dots? No, I think that they, uh, again, overestimate human nature, and I think they underestimate the separation of powers, because that's another thing. I think uh, the the parliament and the English system don't have the separation of power system that we have, and I think that's to their detriment as well. And now now let's conclude our, our conversation this morning with, can we actually win the argument? This is a very practical issue that I think would appeal to Hamilton and others. The Electoral College is easy to denounce. It is denounced repeatedly all day long on the liberal cable networks and on liberal social media because it is poorly understood. Is the argument capable of being won, or should we hope the Democrats go into that box canyon and never emerge from it? I think it is winnable, although I think it's going to be hard because there is great power to the argument that the one with the most votes should win. But I think that we just have to constantly reinforce that the founders built a system that was built on what kind of uh, what kind of goods do we want to result from the election process? Not merely that choice is the beginning, the alpha and omega of democracy. Good popular government involves uh, ordering our choices in a healthy way, and I think that's the argument that we have to make. Now, how much of this is related to President Trump's style? Peggy Noonan has a great piece in the Wall Street Journal today, saying he didn't just blow open the door. He blew it off the hinges and he created jagged edges. He grew so big with such tough rhetoric and such direct politics that it's really polarized all of American politics, producing what she calls the mean girls of Congress, Representatives Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. What do you make of that argument that Trump has really made this the central issue of the day? I think that what's happened is partisanship has become so deep and defining in in the current era. And and the reaction to President Trump has been a big part of this on the Democrat side, that they are willing to not see themselves the way Americans need to see themselves, which is, on one hand, yeah, you need to be a partisan. You need to be on, on a side that, as best you understand it. But on the other hand, you need to be an American citizen and a dedicated to the Constitution. And I think they've now decided that any means is as long as they see it as undermining the president and their opposition is fine. And I think that's not healthy for a a republic. It's not healthy for a constitutional government. Well, the good news is we have term limits. So at most it can go on for four more years. And then the reversion of the norm that always occurs in politics. And I do believe in the reversion of the norm. Our, Our normal situation is the Electoral College follows the popular vote. It's usually a very abnormal situation, and 2016 was one of the most abnormal situations ever given the two leading party candidates. Just doesn't alarm me in terms of history, but changing the basic structure does. It really does. But I don't think it's possible, so I don't know whether or not to worry about it. Last minute to you, Adam Carrington. I don't think you should worry about the system changing. I think we just need to worry about civic education to make sure that the people trust and have confidence in the system and don't check out. And that's the kind of stuff that we're trying to do at Hillsdale, both with our own students with, and with others. And I appreciate uh, that you let Dr. Arn and then me 
uh, this time on to do these kind of things because it's a great civic service to bolster good citizenship, which is the under the bulwark, really, to the greater concept of uh, that the Electoral College is trying to accomplish. You know, we got one more minute. Let me add this, though. I, the, the breakdown of civics in secondary and um, junior high education is complete. I mean, it's completely shattered. How do you redu- rebuild that? We're trying to rebuild it here with our, our charter school initiatives. We're trying to do it with our online courses. We're trying to do it, and other places are trying to do it, by getting back into the public schools and at least giving willing teachers tools to do so. And I think it just has to be a, a large civic effort. And we're going to, you know, I, 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 no victory or defeat is ever completely assured, but we're, we're going to either win or go down fighting on that front. Adam Carrington, professor at Hillsdale College of many, many things. Thank you, my friend. A great conversation today. This will be posted along with every other Hillsdale dialogue from 2013 forward for your binge listening pleasure at HughForHillsdale.com. I think we'll call it Electoral College so that people will just go to know and find it there. And remember, all things Hillsdale are available at Hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu, including all the fabulous courses, many, many of them, 30- and 40-minute courses on World War II or the Second World Wars, as Victor Davis Hanson and Larry Arn refer to it, one of the most uh, magnificent of the recent offerings. Uh, Course in Progressivism, the assault that actually has led to this election cycle that we're in now with the progressive left, one or two on the Constitution, they're all there. They're all free. They're all for your viewing pleasure. If you're a teacher, Adopt your curriculum from that. If you're an interested citizen and you want to improve your own knowledge of how the system works, it's all right there at hillsdale.edu. Thank you, Dr. Carrington.